Hello, I'm Chris Kreitchow, and this is the NeuroStation Podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Interview One, Sean Griffin, Part Two. In Part One, Sean and I talked about his background, some of his work building the diesel ORM, and his intent to build a rustic web framework. Here in Part Two, we get down into the nitty-gritty details of Rust's type system, some of its strengths and weaknesses, and some of the things we might hope to see it do in the future. If you're less familiar with some of the terminology, definitely take a look at the show notes at newrustation.com, as I've provided helpful links with details and explanations of many of the things we get into. To. And now, back into it. So one of the things that the example you gave here, as well as some of the other examples we've talked about so far, brings to mind is it feels like there's a lot more mental overhead right out the door writing Rust than, say, Ruby or Python for this kind of a thing, thinking about the kinds of types you have to return. Number one, are there ways that we can mitigate that but number two what are the upsides to that so sure i mean the way we mitigate it is by building good abstractions like diesel has some of the most complex type signatures you will ever see <laughs> you don't need to think about those i think about those right but the whole point the whole point of diesel is to feel like you're writing basically ruby mm-hmm. but when you get it wrong we give you a helpful error message mm. at compile time. and you don't have to deal with null and you don't have to deal with null i have to deal with null actually a <laughs> lot because sql has null whether i want it to or not right so the upside i'm actually going to frame this slightly more negatively which is more the downside of not having this yeah. you still have types just because your language does not give you a way to reason about them in your code and mm-hmm. does not enforce them does not mean that you don't have types. Sometimes the types may be nonsensical. And by types, <laughs> I don't mean like the exact class of an object. Thing which responds to 2S is still a type. <laughs> right. But of, but of course your stuff has types. Like if it didn't have a type, you couldn't do anything with it because you would have no methods that you would call. Because you wouldn't call any method on something if you didn't have some idea of what type it is. Right. Or you would try and then you would get a method not defined error and then things explode. Well, sure, but even then, if you're if you're calling respond to or rescuing method not defined error or whatever and trying five different things, that's just an enum. Um, but it's like you still have types, you still have to reason about them. Yes, there can be a little bit more cognitive overhead up front when mm-hmm. you're having to be a little bit more explicit, and you have to you have to be very uh, intentional in your in your design of things. This is part of why I think some people say, "Yeah, I will prototype out what I'm doing in Python and then write it in uh, statically typed language after I've after I've got a good feel for it," because hmm. it can definitely make it a little bit harder to prototype. Yeah, because I mean, I'm sure you've had the same thing where it's like, "Oh, I want to change this type signature of this thing slightly," and that's going to bubble through (laughs) everything yeah good knowledge of said is really helpful for that (laughs) yeah so one of the other things i've been thinking about because i just started working in a shop that's a mix of c sharp and a tiny bit of f sharp and front ends written in javascript is the you know what the differences look like between something like c sharp or java and rust because the difference between python or ruby and rust is really obvious in a lot of ways and the difference between c and c++ and rust are fairly obvious in certain ways but you start getting into a language like c sharp or java and and really even going back to c++ some you know how would you characterize the difference because it's just an open question that i'm thinking through even in trying to explain in an episode about types of 
the kinds of differences you see in Rust's type system, really in any type system like Rust and any ML descended language, versus what you see in a C Sharp or a Java or something along those lines? I mean, I think at the core of the DNA of any language is how it goes about code reuse. And in languages like C Sharp or Java, that comes, or C++ even, that comes from traditional inheritance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's various pros and cons to that. Uh, A lot of the problems that come from inheritance, especially when you think of, like, namespace conflicts, Mm -hmm. tend to also come in languages that have static overloading. So you can have the same function name with different signatures. It's actually exceedingly rare to have uh, the same method come from two different interfaces with the exact same signature, but do completely different things. But, you know, I, I, I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to things like iterator versus uh it's it's i enumerable in c plus plus still right mm-hmm. yeah i think so i'm sorry i said c plus plus meant c sharp it's been years since i've done c sharp um but there is no sum function on that interface right i haven't i'm not familiar enough yet myself because i'm just slowly coming up to speed but okay i wouldn't be well, surprised if I, <laughs> if I recall correctly and i could be wrong there is no sum function on there nor would it make sense for there to be because you couldn't actually represent it because mm. c sharp similar to java performs type erasure in in its uh, system for generics, and therefore you can't actually say uh, once it, when you're at the level of dealing with i enumerable uh, or i enumerate or whatever the heck the actual name is, um, <laughs> you can't actually say. And then is this a thing I can add? Is it not? Right. You don't have the power in the type system to reason that way at that point. Right. And a lot of that's because the types just need to live at runtime. And that's a whole completely different trade-off that has actually has very little to do with the actual type system and Mm -hmm. more has to do with the runtime environment. But, um, you know, it's really hard to compare them this way. But I I do often think that type class-based code reuse is much more akin to composition in object-oriented languages than inheritance. Mm -hmm. If you think about... uh, implementation of a trait as an object in and of itself hmm. okay yeah i can see that now you're ultimately using the type uh and your, your your various where clauses as the rules to reason about which object to pass in mm-hmm. but you're ultimately keeping uh the behavior strictly separated from uh, the object itself right. or the structure itself yeah and uh I've been interested to see as I'm digging through how much C-sharp these days is stealing from other languages in terms of the stuff they're getting with Link and everything else where closures everywhere and Lambda's everywhere and... And that makes a lot of well, sense. Good, and they should. Yeah, and they're doing a lot of interesting things. The Midori follow-on posts that Joe Duffy is writing uh, on his own blog from the Microsoft Research stuff is fascinating similarly, and I'll be very interested to see how that stuff trickles into C-sharp over the next number of years. It's been interesting to watch him basically only have nice things to say about Rust, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm always yeah. curious because he's got some strong opinions and he's obviously got a a deep well to draw on and the last thing i want to do is end up being one of those people who's a partisan for a language rust has a lot of strengths but kind of as an interesting perhaps parting question as we kind of wrap things up what are the weaknesses you've run into in rust so far where are the places where it doesn't do things as well well, there are perfectly valid things that you might want to express that currently aren't possible with the bar checker. Mm. Now, we can sometimes work around this with things like the entry API for when you want to get a value and then stick a value in there if it's not already present. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the we wouldn't act, there's no reason that we shouldn't need the entry API to exist. It only exists to work around issues with the bar checker. Um, the lack of higher kinded types, mm-hmm. even at the lifetime level in particular, I found really limiting. Mm. Uh, one of the places that I think 
Well, so I got into an argument in IRC about this. Um, so when I, when I speak about DREF, I'm almost always speak speaking about it in the context of DREF coercions, not in the actual dereferencing operator, because <laughs> I never use the dereferencing operator other than to write implementations of DREF. Um, right, but if you look at the signature of it, basically one of the things I've found very frustrating about DREF is that it doesn't compose. Mm. So string can DREF to stir. Mm-hmm. Why can't an option string DREF to an option stir? Right, the standard F map pattern essentially. Yeah, but but well, and, and you can do that same F map, but the, the thing is, that, right, that F map is implicit on string. Right. Or it's not even an F map, but like it's implicit on string. I'd rather that F map be implicit. Uh, and ironically. Since as stir, as slice, whatever the final name was, still actually isn't stable, if I recall. I think it's in one <laughs> seven that's stable. Yeah. The uh the most concise way to convert a string to a stir without DREF coercion is ampersand variable name square bracket dot dot square bracket. Oh dear. <laughs> yep. Go look at crates.io uh source code. You will see that <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. But a lot of this is because of the way the signature is set up, right? Because you have type output, mm-hmm. uh, which is just some type that may be unsized. Uh, and then you have the function DREF, which takes a reference to self and returns a reference of that type. And so that it doesn't work with option. Ironically, it actually could work with option um, since the wrapper of an option to a reference is uh, the same as a refer to a wrapper to that reference because a reference is guaranteed to be right. null. So none will just be. So you could actually just mem transmute it and make it work. But <laughs> besides, like, but th- then that still doesn't compose to result, which needs the extra byte to say whether it's the it's okay or error. Um, right. Right. But in a, in a in a different world, a if we just had DREF be generic over uh, lifetime a, mm-hmm. and then the actual type could state the specific return value being being that reference and then and then the f- signature of the function returned that type and not a reference that type or if we just had higher kinded lifetimes which mm. is one of the things that i really want where i want to be able to say like hey this type like i need you to tell me what this type is going to be for any arbitrary lifetime a which you almost always can answer but a lot of this just comes down to the way we have to reason about lifetimes when you're dealing with them beyond the function level which is painful right there are two questions there that come up to mind which are what is the shortest way you could summarize higher kinded types and what is the best resource you've run into so far for thinking about lifetimes because both of those one of those is just kind of one of those things that goes around in the rust community and i think a lot of people are bumping into it and saying the higher kind of what's and the other is just one of those perennial hard problems in rust i think for people to understand well sure okay so higher kind of types so one thing that people might be more familiar with is the idea of a higher order function, mm-hmm. which if you're not familiar with the definition is just a function which takes another function as an argument. So when you're saying that I'm dealing with a higher order function, you're saying I'm dealing with a function which takes another function as an argument, and I don't actually care about what that function is or does. Good example of this coming from the JavaScript world. If, you have, if you're uh, trying to convert a callback into a promise... That the, the function to do that is going to be a function, which takes a function as an argument, and you know that function takes another function as an argument, <laughs> but you don't actually care what that function does, and you're going to pass the uh, promise resolve function to that as, as an argument, yeah. right? But that's like, that's sort of an example of, of, of where that's useful to reason about. Ironically, like being able to deal with the, con- the, the concept of a higher order function and know nothing about that other than that's higher order is significantly less useful than higher kind of type, but it is still useful sometimes. <laughs> Uh, so a higher kind of type is very similar in that it's basically a type that takes a type argument. Ah. Um, and so that means that you can abstract over that. So you could say, like, here's an interface that works for option or result or anything else. 
But the important thing being that you know that it takes a, it, well, specifically in this case, you'd, you'd want to be able to reason about the fact that it takes exactly one type argument, which would mm-hmm. mean that result, um, like in Haskell, for example, results called either. And uh, the error type is the first type parameter. Mm. And everything's curried over there. So you can put in ju- like a half built result. Mm-hmm. Like a result with this error type is still a type in and of itself or a right. type constructor rather. Right. Anyway, so, so the simplest way that I think that we would ever see uh, higher kinded types make it into Rust and probably the easiest way for people who aren't familiar with them to reason about them is what if associated types on traits could take type arguments? Hmm. Yeah, that would allow for things that you can't can't express at all right now, right? Exactly. Well, uh, you can do it in really terrible ways. <laughs> um, basically, you make the trait itself generic over whatever you wanted that type parameter ah, to be. yuck. Which means yeah. that like, you can't ever actually reference this trait in a where clause, ever. Right. Because the, the other thing that we would need to make that reasonable uh, to do is... Um, a thing called higher ranked traits or higher ranked types, sorry, hmm. which is uh, similar. And we have higher ranked lifetimes in, in Rust. It's a very um, rare syntax that you might see occasionally. And it'll appear in a where clause and it'll be uh, where T colon for lifetime of A something. Ah. And it's basically when you want to say for all lifetimes. Gotcha. That's called, higher, that's called a higher ranked lifetime. And so uh, a higher ranked type would, uh, would, would perform similarly. But yeah, that's what higher kind of types are, are in a nutshell. If you want to see some code that really, really wants higher kind of types, I encourage you to go look at the source code of the query DSL module in uh, Diesel because basically every single one of those traits should not need to, to have hmm. a, a type parameter, but we, we, we basically need higher kind of types. Yeah, that makes sense. There was a second half to that question, wasn't there? <laughs> there was. I made the mistake of putting two large loaded questions together. In terms of thinking about lifetimes and reasoning about them, what have you found most helpful, including any resources you've bumped into? The most helpful advice I can find about um, reason about lifetimes is avoided at all costs. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, like they're hard to wrap your head around, but once you get it, they're they're not too too hard to think about. Yeah, it's really just understanding when you need to specify them, hmm. which I think we've done a terrible job at documenting. Yeah. That's been on my list of episodes to cover for a while, and I haven't gotten there because I just can't find the info to summarize it for myself well enough to turn it into something to say, basically. Sure. Well, the short answer is I've not found any great resources for it. You should make that. Cool. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it it just comes down to, right, lifetime elision only works when you're dealing with it at the function level. Right. And the rules for lifetime elision there aren't that complicated. And lifetimes are a little bit less wonky on nightly now. I don't know when they changed this, but you used to very frequently have to be like, if you had lifetime A and type T, and you were taking a slice, a borrowed slice of lifetime A of T, Mm -hmm. you would have to also put the constraint where T outlives A, Mm. like for no reason. Yeah, I bumped into that once, and it was really annoying. (laughs) And I mean, and and to be fair, the compiler would just give you, it would be one of those cases where the compiler would say, you need to add exactly this, and then you add exactly that, and it (laughs) works. You no longer have to do that. So that Ah, hopefully makes it a little bit less confusing. Uh, One of the really confusing cases I ran into, which... I had to go basically ask an IRC for a half hour and open an issue on <laughs> on rustling rustling. We should document this better. Is uh, the rules for lifetime elision with regards to trait objects? Who? Oh my! Yeah, you're getting into some of the weeds of Rust there, as it yeah. were. Well, because it's either going to be in a box or behind a reference, right? And so implicitly, the the data. 
behind the trade object lives for whatever the lifetime, uh, uh, the default lifetime, I should say, of where you're storing that trade object is. All right, so, so a box implies static by default. It doesn't always have to be static. You can have a box that lives for a lifetime less than static, but it implies static by default. And so if you have box trade object, that's actually sugar over box trade object plus static. Oh, Okay, <laughs> which when yeah. I which when I was then boxing an iterator and uh, like the data that was coming out of it might be uh, in a cow, which is <laughs> by definition not static. Right. I'm like, why the hell are you telling me you need to be static? This can't be static. No. And it's it, it's not documented anywhere. There's mm. an RFC where they codify these rules that's not referenced anywhere. Mm. Yeah, that is actually one of the things I would love to see is some of this stuff pinned down more. Someone commented to me a while back that one of their critiques of the Swift book is that it's half reference and half tutorial. And unfortunately, I have to say that one of my critiques of the Rust book would be that it's half reference and half tutorial. And yeah. have, you been, have you been following Steve's work on the new book? No, I haven't. The new book is better. Good. I will go follow it. Uh, he, he tweets occasionally asking for feedback on specific chapters, but it, that's been getting better. And yeah, and that and that's basically my solution. To all of those, right? Is go ask an IRC, try and figure out yeah. what's going on, and then when I realize what the actual issue is, go open an issue and say, "Hey, Steve, fix it." <laughs> and then heckle him on Twitter until he fixes it. Heckling seems like the best solution all around. By the way, Steve, if you're listening, there's still no documentation on the behavior of trade objects with lifetimes. <laughs> Please fix. Please fix it, Steve. Please fix it for us all. Yeah. No, I am. I'm really glad that that this is a language, though. I mean, yeah. Regardless of where it's at, this is the only language I've ever heard of that has a full time employee working on it whose entire job is to write docs. Yes. Like it can only get better. Yeah. And as early as it is, I mean, for all that, Rust is nine years old now, coming up on. Sure. It, it's also only less than a year old in important ways, and. Where it's at for being less than a year old, I think, is pretty great. I'm pretty happy with it. I don't get me wrong. We have baggage. Like, there's very obvious API baggage. That's like it's 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 funny when you show the language to to like language nerds and they're mm-hmm. like expecting Rust to be this fresh new thing that's bright eyed and bushy tailed, <laughs> doesn't have all the problems of older, more grizzled languages. And it's like, nope, there's the same baggage because <laughs> it's been around for a lot longer Long than people Yeah, but yeah, I mean. It, we have issues, like, there's a lot of places that Rust could improve for Diesel. Luckily, mm-hmm. we're on the core team's radar, at least, so mm-hmm. that helps. But, uh, you know, that, like, we've got macros all over the place where, where, where we have to basically do these boilerplate brute force implementations of traits because we can't express the blanket implementations that we need to. Right. Be it due to the lack of specialization or the lack of the latisserial uh, specialization or the lack of negative reasoning or what have you. But we've been able to work around everything <laughs> that's like, pretty it, great it's, it's ugly to be able to work around everything even if it's ugly is no small thing yeah no i think it's a, a sign that the core team did a really good job at prioritizing what yeah. did didn't make it into 1.0 yeah thanks for being on and chatting yeah sorry for sorry for for rambling uh, into weird technical depths i fully intended to have you ramble into weird technical depths i have listened to your other podcasts <laughs> where i ramble a lot <laughs> exactly exactly where can people find you on the internet probably the best easiest way to reach me is uh twitter i am sgrif on it's also my github handle i'm also in the rust irc um the diesel gitter room and you can email me at sean at sean the 
Sweet. I will link all of those in the show notes, and I will also link to the bike shed. And there are a whole bunch of episodes where Sean and company have talked about Rust, and often with a semi-skeptical audience listening to Sean gush about what he's doing in Rust this week or that week. So those are good fun and well worth your time as well. Thanks for being on and spending some time talking Rust with us. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this first interview. Our next couple episodes will focus on Rust's type system in general, on those pesky lifetimes we keep mentioning but not actually talking about, and what it means to be an expression-oriented language. I'll also have more interviews coming on a semi-regular basis in the future, but for now it's back to those nitty-gritty details of learning Rust. And keep your ears open. I have a non-trivial project I'll be starting in Rust in the next few weeks, which should provide a lot of interesting topics along the way. Thanks again to Hamza Sheikh and Chris Palmer for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash newrustation or a one-off contribution at Venmo, Dwala, or cash.me. You can find links to each of those, to the many things Sean and I talked about on the show, and notes and more at newrustation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at New Rust Station, or follow me there, at Chris Kreitcho. You can help others find the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, recommending it in another podcast directory, tweeting about it, or just telling a friend. Thanks again to everyone who's added corrections and fixed typos in the show notes. Keep sending me pull requests. I'll keep merging them. I also love hearing from listeners. It makes my week every time it happens. Definitely say hi on social media, add your thoughts in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum, or shoot me an email at hello at newrustation.com. Until next time, happy coding. We're basically done at this point, right? Because I'm, I'm like going into stuff that probably oh, yeah. is not suitable for a new Rust programmer's <laughs> podcast. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be slightly technical, so I may release it as like, if you want to hear us get real technical, here we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs>